Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hey, you Climavores listeners, we want your feedback to the tune of 100 bucks. Fill out our listener survey. You can find the link in the show notes, and you'll have a chance to win a $100 Patagonia gift card. We hope you'll also join us on November 30th for a live virtual episode of Climavores with a very special guest, the nutrition goddess, Marion Nessel. You can come ask her and us questions about food, nutrition, and eating for the climate. Again, that's November 30th. It'll be 1 p.m. Eastern time. That's the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. So this is our first Thanksgiving episode, and as a food podcast, I think we're legally obligated to talk about turkey recipes. Except, Tamar, you don't even do turkey at Thanksgiving, right? Most years, we don't. Our favorite thing to do is actually venison, and we shoot the deer ourselves. And before you make fun of me for being a stone killer, I have to point out that deer do environmental damage, especially in places where they're, they're overpopulated. And while they're at it, they're burping up methane because they're ruminants, just like cattle. So venison should definitely get the Climavore stamp of approval. I mean, you're killing Bambi, but yes, uh, venison is about as good as you're going to get for a meat for the climate, mainly because deer aren't raised on farms. And as we keep saying, farms are places where a lot of emissions happen. But unfortunately, I think most of us will eat Thanksgiving turkeys that have been raised on farms, right? These turkeys have been eating corn and soybeans that needed land and fertilizer and other resources Look, turkeys are way better for the climate than beef. That's why Thanksgiving is way better for the climate than America's 4th of July burger fests. But the turkey is the most emissions-intensive part of the meal, unless you're eating tofurkey or maybe shooting the turkey yourself. A a wild turkey would certainly be a climate win. And if you look back at what we know about that first Thanksgiving, there are only three foods that we can say for sure were on the table. One was fowl, which was probably turkey. One was venison. And so my venison is definitely in the spirit of the thing. And the third was corn, which is probably the most climate-friendly crop we can grow. So they had it going on in that first Thanksgiving climate-wise. Look how far we've come, right? Instead of eating wild turkey and corn, now we use corn to fatten up our farm turkeys when we're not turning it into high fructose corn syrup or pouring it into our gas tanks or making Twinkies out of it. Look what we did with the deer. We let them get wildly overpopulated so they do environmental damage in the countryside and even in some of the cities. I know, right? They're Now they're like the rats of the Connecticut suburbs. Yes. I think our larger point is that Thanksgiving is a really cool time to think about food because it's become the ultimate food holiday. And I know Americans turn all holidays into food holidays, but Thanksgiving really is an opportunity not only to be thankful that we have enough to eat, because it's worth remembering that a billion people on Earth don't, but to take a few minutes to talk about where our food comes from. I mean, if you're shooting your dinner, you probably already know. But if you're not, it might be good to have a reminder that it doesn't magically materialize on supermarket shelves. And you're totally right that, you know, the fact that I get 
a lot of my Thanksgiving dinners, some years myself, is that reminder. Some years we shoot a deer. We also harvest oysters. We use fish that we catch and have put down over the summer. Not only is that a reminder of where food comes from, it's also a climate win. In fact, you know, the original Thanksgiving was such a climate-friendly meal. I think we should be like the the originalists at Thanksgiving. We can be the Antonin Scalia's of the holiday. (laughs) Well, look, one thing about those original settlers and the indigenous people they met here, they understood the intimate connection between their food and the land, right? Today, fewer than 1% of Americans are farmers, and we've lost some of that connection. So we'll talk about that a bit, because the climate impact of our food is in many ways about its impact on the land. We're also going to talk about the climate impact of your Thanksgiving dinner, assuming you eat stuffing and cranberry sauce rather than oysters and venison. And it really is hard to think of a more climate-friendly food holiday unless you go all the way to Yom Kippur. (laughs) Which is another good holiday for introspection and for thinking about food. Although mostly I find myself thinking about how desperately I want to eat some. Unlike Thanksgiving, when I'm mostly regretting how much I did eat and wondering how my pants got so tight. Anyway, I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And today, we're giving thanks that we get to bring you Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So since we're going to ruin Thanksgiving by uh, talking about the climate angle and where, you know, what is the climate impact of our food— I thought I'd try to ruin the story of the original Thanksgiving as well. And we are available if you want us at your Thanksgiving dinner. We are always great at dinner parties, at cocktail parties. We're just endless amounts of fun. But look, I think there's already been a lot of debunking of the original myth of Thanksgiving, right? This idea that the Native Americans and the pilgrims got together and it was all hunky-dory because, in fact— it really did not work out well for the Native Americans. There was genocide. There were also all kinds of horrible diseases that led to a real decimation of the Native American population in uh, in North America. But it's actually... Even worse than that, you know, if that if if the old story was canceled, I'm going to get us super canceled because it turns out the genocide, the depopulation of the so-called new world, which really wasn't so new, was a climate win. Uh, oh, great! We're going to be the podcast that genocide has an upside, Mike. <laughs> Is that where you're going? And again, I don't want to make light of it because it's a stain on our history. It's a horrible story. But there really is a lesson because it turns out that, you know, there was a really thriving population in North and South America of indigenous peoples before European contact. Um, Then starting in the 1500s, particularly in South America, and then in the 1600s as well in North America, there was this so-called great dying. Um, But that great dying was accompanied by an actual global cooling. And the scientists who have looked at ancient pollen, who have looked at the ice core data, who have done the modeling, they really do attribute it to the die-off of the Native American indigenous people. And the reason is... There's this other myth that they were kind of noble savages who lived lightly on the land, and that is not true. They were sophisticated farmers who deforested a huge part of the Americas. And that's why when they were wiped out, 
You saw real reforestation in the middle of the country and much of South America that sort of recarbonization of the terrestrial carbon, um, and it was removing it from the atmosphere where it had been taken away by Native Americans setting fires or to flush out their wild game or just deforesting land to make room for their farms. And just to be clear, I mean, deforestation in this day and age is is a dirty word. It's the thing that we're trying to avoid doing. But if you're going to be the sophisticated farmers that the indigenous populations were, and you live in a place with forests, it's the only way to feed yourself. And so, you know, this has been a necessary part of the growing population worldwide is deforestation. The point I'm trying to make is that agriculture changed everything, right? You hear a lot about the Anthropocene, right? This is our era, right, when human beings are changing the world. And for a long time, it was thought of that the Anthropocene began essentially with the Industrial Revolution when we started burning fossil fuels. And it's true, you see a like gigantic spike in atmospheric carbon when we started taking this, you know, carbon from the Carboniferous era and uh, burning it in our cars and our coal plants. But there's this new theory, this early Anthropocene, where they show that there was actually a big spike in carbon levels about 10 to 12,000 years ago. And what happened 10 to 12,000 years ago? Agriculture. (laughs) In fact, before agriculture, the entire planet only had like 5 million people. But By the Industrial Revolution, you had a billion people. And again, this is the power of agriculture. By feeding people on a mass scale, it made it possible to have a billion people on Earth. But that had a real climate impact. That started to... There had been an entire South America worth of deforestation before the Industrial Revolution even happened. And... You know, today, when we have the middle of a country is amber waves of grain, you realize, like, that used to be forests, that used to be carbon, and a lot of the carbon problem we have has been a land use problem created by agriculture. And so, you know, the very act of feeding ourselves, we've sort of sealed our doom in a way. And a lot of that land now with the amber waves of grain was actually, it was prairie, it wasn't forest. But the idea is the same, that we have to release the carbon. If it's forest, it's in the trees and the soil. If it's prairie, it's in... And the upper Midwest, the upper Midwest was forest. Was forest, yeah. Mm -hmm. And look, I mean, even people talk about grazing land, right? Pastures. Well, 40% of all grazing land today on the planet was originally forest. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to feed yourself. There's no way we can feed now. We've ticked to 8 billion people on the planet unless we have cleared land. But that said, you can farm well and you can farm poorly. And, you know, some of the, the accusations that are leveled at industrial agriculture in this country, those amber waves of grain, are totally legit. Because, you know, post, you talked about the industrial revolution, post green revolution, we're growing things with insufficient attention, or we had been growing things with insufficient attention to the the environmental impact of things like fertilizers, which is why we have soil runoff, which is why we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is why we have nutrient loading in Lake Erie that is causing 
terrible toxic algae blooms. And I think, you know, I've never talked to anybody in agriculture who doesn't think that mistakes were made and now we, we have to do something to correct them. But I do think it's important also to remember that even before we had pesticides and fertilizers and herbicides and all kinds of nasty toxic chemicals that are creating all kinds of, you know, not just environmental problems, but climate problems and some people think health problems, even when we just had fire in the plow, right? Um, even when we, the primitive farming, they had a huge impact on the land. And, you know, so now as we have this green revolution and this we talk about all the time, there is this trade-off between more intensive farming where you're trying to make more food with less land so that you don't have to destroy so much nature and more extensive farming where maybe you're being a little gentler to the land, but you're using more of it, which means less nature, more deforestation. This is really the problem with meat, right? It's the, uh, it's the ultimate extensive form of farming is raising livestock. It's absolutely true. And this is why meat is sort of uh, like all meat products have a larger carbon footprint than nearly all plant products. And the people who say, you know, vegan is the way to have a climate-friendly diet are correct. You know, we talk about this all the time, the sort of food and land problem, and particularly the food, land, and meat problem. But Thanksgiving kind of makes it real tangible, right? When you see what's on your, what's on your plate, meat is an inefficient way of getting nutrition. It just is. Now, Turkey and chicken and other poultry are not as inefficient as as beef. We've talked about how with beef, it's like you need 40 calories in to get one calorie of meat out. But it's pretty bad with turkeys too, um, right? Uh, you know, it's it's like you can eat a bowl of pasta and then throw out another eight, right? That's like eating grain in the form of meat. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? To grow a turkey on a farm, you've got to grow the beak, you've got to grow the brain, you've got to grow the waddle, which I looked up. That's that weird little red thing on the neck that go, right? Um, and you've got to keep the turkey alive, right? It needs a respiratory system. It needs, you know, it needs to breathe. It needs to gobble. It needs to do all kinds of things that require energy, but don't make meat, and then when you try and breed a bird so that it devotes nearly all of its resources to the making of meat, you have the modern broiler chicken, which doesn't have legs that it can support it and is prone to injury and disease and barely moves around because it barely can. So it, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. <laughs> right, right. And then we have like the president every year will will like pardon a couple turkeys, which first of all, it's like, what, like the other turkeys don't, like, what did they do wrong? They don't get a, like, can you maybe even commute their sentence? And then, it's the ultimate and, in tokenism. And then, of course, like, we're always talking about additionality. It's like, you know, there are two more turkeys just waiting to take their place at the slaughterhouse. So I know it's, it's terrible. Somebody should do a, where are they now about all the turkeys <laughs> yeah. that have been Yeah, pardoned. I'll tell you where are they now. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean, like you said, if, you know, if we're all going to go vegan, if we're all going to eat at the bottom of the food chain, that would solve a lot of our 
agriculture and climate problems. But we're not. And we're not because people like meat. And Mike and I like meat. We're not vegan. We do eat meat. We try and eat the kind of meat that is most climate friendly, and we are very aware of the footprint of our meat. But, you know, it's it's always this this weighing when you're making any kind of climate decision about nobody expects you to shut down your lifestyle and stop driving and stop flying and stop eating meat. It's a little hard to get by in the modern world that way, and you give up a lot of pleasures. And pleasure is important too. So we are kind of dug in on the idea that the world is not going to go vegan. But it's worth it's worth pointing out this, for, at least for me, and I know for you too, Tamar, this is really the allure of plant-based meats, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, the, the original animal rights movement was actually founded to try to protect the overworked horses that had to drive carriages, right, back in the late 19th century. And, you know, the ASPCA was founded to try to get these horses, like, watering stations and a day off on Sunday and and, and better working hours. But, of course, like, the ASPCA didn't end up doing anything for the horses. Who sa- The guy who saved the horses was named Henry Ford. He came up with a horse-free form of transportation uh, that consumers liked a lot better. And that's why I'm very excited about, you know, the, at least the, uh, the promise of plant-based meat, the idea that we could come up with an animal-free form of consumption that people will like, if not better, at least as much. And so mm-hmm. I think we should give, uh, everybody makes fun of it, but we should give a shout out to Tofurky. Tofurky. Right? <laughs> right. How long has that been around? It's been, well, it's been around since the 90s. The guy who founded it, it's just a great story. He started making tempeh <laughs> in the 80s. Um, he was making no money. He was living in a tree house. A tree um, house. Uh, then he got this idea. He started. He moved on to making the kind of faux meats made out of soy and wheat protein. And it's still a family company that really does have its heart in the right place. It's about saving the world. It's about saving animals and saving the climate. And it's interesting. I, I talked to the current CEO a couple of years ago. I met him at a at a conference. And you know, in, in some in in a way. They can't help but be, I think, a little bit offended by this rise of these biotech companies who are, you know, re-engineering meat at a molecular level. Right. Here we are, Tofurky, been here for decades. Remember us? Like, we were there with the Boca Burgers. Tofurky has a pretty vegan audience, and these guys are trying to go beyond that. But to their credit, Tofurky has taken the lead in fighting back on behalf of the plant-based meat industry against some of these absurd laws that states are passing that try to say, like, you can't call it meat unless it comes from a slaughtered animal, as if what consumers really like is the slaughter. Um, and and Tofurky is out there, you know, they're fighting for their, you know, more popular, <laughs> cooler new colleagues. You got to love them. And it's funny because Tofurky, it, it doesn't appeal to me. I used to try to eat Boca burgers and I couldn't tolerate them. And so I, I don't think that it, anybody should suggest that Thanksgiving is the day you swallow hard and give up the thing that you really like for the thing that you don't like but is good for the planet. I think that's fair. But look, I think we it's worth pointing out that eating plants is always better than eating animals that eat plants and everything in moderation, right? It's totally true. But in the spectrum, turkey is pretty good uh, as far as meat goes. 
And the good news is pretty much everything else on the table is going to be a climate win. So let's, let's start at the top and do a rundown of the foods that are common on the Thanksgiving table. And we've talked about the turkey already, but just to sort of put a number on it on a per calorie basis, turkey has about one seventh the impact of beef. Beef is like in 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 like in climavores terms. I guess if we were, if we were at Thanksgiving, beef is like the Detroit Lions, right? <laughs> they're just like they're the worst. <laughs> So I think we should set a challenge for ourselves to one episode not mention beef. (laughs) So usually the thing that goes with the turkey is a cranberry sauce. Now, Mike, you confessed to me that you like the slices from the jellied stuff that comes out of the can. Oh, yeah. You you totally ratted me out. But it was like (laughs) jello when I was a kid. I loved that stuff. So my mother was, uh, and my mother, I will say, is much on my mind. Um, some of listeners who follow me on Twitter may know that my my mother died last week. And so we are, she was ready to go. And so we are determined to celebrate her life more than mourn her death. Although, of course, we're very sad. But my mother... It was really, it was a beautiful outpouring on Twitter. Uh, just uh, There was. It was heartwarming. We are, uh, we're all, I know all of our listeners are also sending you love. Thank you. And my mother, we had we always had a nice Thanksgiving dinner, and she loved Thanksgiving for the old-fashioned sappy reasons about giving thanks, and that's sort of the same reason she, and I guess I inherited it, always like Passover to think about uh, freedom and Yom Kippur to think about the things that you could do better. Um, and so she always made the cranberry sauce by, and it's so easy. You put the cranberries in the pot with a little sugar and some orange zest, and you cook it for a while, and you have lemon zest, and you have cranberry sauce. It's 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 really really straightforward. And cranberries, they're kind of a niche crop, so it's hard to find a breakout on their exact climate impact. But people who have looked at it put them in a category with other kinds of berries, which are you know high on the plant scale as far as greenhouse gas emissions, but still, all the plants are still lower than all of the... It's in, it's in your part of the world, right? In the pilgrims part of the world. That's that, right, Cape Cod. That they, they grow a lot of it. I would imagine there's a little bit of a methane issue there because it's such a wet crop, right? They, they... I think there probably is, but I don't know for sure. I don't think it... It hasn't been studied the way, for example, rice has because it's not a staple crop. <laughs> it's not you a know? big deal. <laughs> no, it's not a big deal. So so there you have the, the, the turkey and the cranberry sauce, but the turkey is usually usually stuffed. And I know that those food safety people tell you not to put the stuffing in the turkey because then, you, you know, you have the potential for for the growth of, of hostile organisms. But I always stuff my turkey. And here's another trick I learned from my mother is that you always make sure that you stuff, you put the stuffing in the turkey when it's still warm, when it's just out of the pan, and that reduces any chance of contamination. I've been doing this my whole life, and we've never gotten sick from the stuffing in turkey. Um, and But people put things in the stuffing, which some people call dressing, which are super climate-friendly. There's oysters, which um, at our family table are uh, uh, an appetizer. We serve them on the half shell. And oysters are one of the few foods that leave the environment better than they find it because they're filter feeders and they get rid of some of that stuff that causes algae blooms and fish kills. Some people use chestnuts, and we all know that 
tree fruits and tree nuts are a climate win. Um, and some people use cornbread. And this is where we hearken back to the original Thanksgiving. And it is not only in the spirit of the thing, but it uses one of the crops that, despite what you've heard about the evils of corn, is one of the most climate-friendly crops there is because corn is so incredibly productive. And Mike, should I do an aside about like the difference between field corn and sweet corn? Do sure. people know that? Should I do yeah, that? Sure, go for okay. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, so I'm always afraid of telling people something that you know. Oh, we knew that. Um, but field corn, which is the kind of corn that carpets the Midwest, is a different kind of corn from sweet corn, which is obviously the kind you eat on Fourth of July, for example. And when comes on the cob, <laughs> it comes on the cob, and so or in the can or in the frozen food aisle, which is an excellent place to buy corn, by the way. So if you're eating cornbread or grits or polenta, anything that's made from those dried little pieces of corn, if you have cornmeal, that comes from field corn, which is the corn that has these incredible yields. And it actually dries in the field. And you've probably driven by at some point a cornfield that all the stalks are brown. And that's when they come by with the combine and the combine separates the cobs from the chaff. Right. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And uh, no, but it, but people also don't, like, this is maize that we're talking about here, right? It's not corn on the cob. And this is what people around the world eat. Like, they don't put, they don't put their maize into Twinkies or Coca-Cola or, you know, God forbid, their SUVs. Um, they eat it. In, and if you're having cornbread, I guess that's your sort of hearkening back to sort of the way, the way corn's supposed to be eaten. Cornbread, tortillas, polenta, so many cultures have their version of it, but that is absolutely a climate win, as are dun, 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 potatoes. So potatoes are another crop, a staple crop, that are just incredibly productive on that metric that I'm trying to get everyone to care about, calories per acre. Potatoes are one of the few crops that are up there with corn. And so they are, potatoes are a great thing to put on your Thanksgiving table. Now, of course, if you mashed potatoes, you have to have massive amounts, if you're me, of butter and maybe some cream. And so the dairy, of course, ups the quotient. And if you want to dial that back, try and go crispy and, and roast them instead of mash them. And, and you can cut back on some of that. But again, Thanksgiving is not necessarily the day where I think you have to think about all this stuff. Um, if you're like me, you like sweet potatoes better than potatoes, and uh, they are in, in the same category. They're not quite as productive as potatoes, but they're an excellent choice all around. How about when you put marshmallows on top of them? That's, uh, that's Oh, yeah, <laughs> those little marshmallows. Look, I don't understand putting the marshmallows on the potatoes. I think it's for nutritional reasons, as, if, as I recall. Um, my So I should point out that the marshmallows are probably also made with corn <laughs> in the form of <laughs> high fructose corn syrup. So yeah, go ahead with those. <laughs> I mean, all right. It's From a gastronomic standpoint, I can't go there with you. But from a climate standpoint, I can. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's the green bean casserole. 
And uh, green vegetables are kind of like berries. They're, they're one of the higher impact plants, but a high impact plant is still better than a low impact animal. So go ahead, put the crispy onions on. You're basically good to go on all of the sides for your Thanksgiving dinner, but then there's dessert. And the trend sort of continues. Um, the things that we put in pies at our house, apples, pumpkin, pecan, those are all great climate-friendly foods. Um, so yeah, pie up to your heart's content. And there's, there's really only one villain climate-wise for the Thanksgiving meal, and it doesn't show up on the table. It usually shows up in the refrigerator the next day or in the garbage, and that is waste. And we've all been there where you're faced with a mountain of leftovers and the next day it's kind of, you know, soul deadening to think of ways to eat these foods that you ate to satiation the day before and so, of course, don't look as good to you. But if you want to have a more climate-friendly Thanksgiving, um, that's where you should look and and I do think it is scientifically proven that uh, that leftover turkey is actually better for a few days. It tastes better, isn't that right? <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of leftover turkey, and I will say that um, my Washington Post column for November is about the climate impact of Thanksgiving. And my colleague at the Post, Becky Crystal, wrote a column about. Uh, ways that you can reduce waste. And of course, there are all kinds of recipes for what to do with leftover turkey and other kinds of leftovers. So I, f I feel like I'm somewhat of a climate hero when it comes to, uh, <laughs> to eating left leftover turkey. But it is worth remembering. We've we've discussed this in, a, in the past, but a third of all food is wasted. <laughs> Sometimes it maybe feels like half of that waste comes on Thanksgiving. But when you waste food, you waste all the fertilizers and pesticides and water and land and labor and everything else that was used to grow it. Um, you know, if food waste was a country, it would be the third highest emitting country on earth. Um, it is, uh, it is a way we can really help. And, and it's pretty much with food, like with everything else, you want to try to reduce, reuse and recycle. And since nobody really reduces on Thanksgiving, um, you want to reuse that stuff. And then, if you if it you know if, if you can't hold out long enough, then you want to try to compost it. And I'm going to make one final plea: take that turkey carcass and make stock out of it. And if you think making stock is a big hairy deal, I'm here to tell you that it isn't. All you need to do is break it in pieces, put it in a pot, cover it with water, and simmer it for several hours. Or if you have a pressure cooker, that's even better. And homemade stock and things is way better than the stuff that you buy. Somebody once told me that that they went to a conference with you, and uh, at the end, you like stole the carcass so that you could make it, but you could make stock out of it. They didn't know if you like put it in your suitcase to take it home or something. I did. It was carrion luggage. <laughs> 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 I have a vague memory of this. You but are yeah. an American original tomorrow. <laughs> I, I hate to see a carcass go to waste. And so if you're not going to use yours, you call me up and I'll come pick it up. But tomorrow, let's face it. I mean, Thanksgiving is about food. And I guess... Like the spoil sports we are, we've made it a little bit about the climate impact of food. But really, 
I mean, Thanksgiving is about family and it's about memories. I mean, in, in, in our family, anytime we sit down to Thanksgiving dinner, the first thing everybody talks about, or at least when the turkey comes out, is we remember I must have been like six years old. We were having uh, Thanksgiving at my great aunt Marion's house in, uh, in Yonkers, you know, after the couple hours of chit-chat and football and whatever else was happening, um, they finally opened up the stove to bring out the turkey and realized they had not turned it on. Um, and it's, uh, it's still, you know, it's a family legend that will, will never be forgotten. And of course, you know, now that Aunt Marion and my grandparents who are there are no longer with us, it's sort of a nice way to, to remember it. I mean, I, I think I mentioned this to you, but... One of my most vivid Thanksgiving memories now, it didn't really have anything to do with Thanksgiving. It was when my son, Max, he was, he was probably five or six, and he was, a, as you know, a very precocious brain, uh, a, a reader. And he had been bugging me that he wanted to read The Hunger Games, um, which is, you know, he's six. And so we were saying, no, no, no. And he kept asking. So finally I was like, all right, look, I'm going to read it. And I read it. I, I think I may have read it even like a lot of it on the plane on the way over to, to Thanksgiving. And I finally, and I told my wife, I was like, you know, it's not appropriate for a six or seven year old, but it's really good. It's well-written. I think maybe we should just let him read it. <laughs> and I have this indelible memory of we're at Thanksgiving, we're all at the table, and except for Max, who's sitting on the couch. And I looked over at the couch, and he was just sitting there enraptured by this book, and there's a tear running down his face um, as, uh, you know, as he's reading The Hunger Games. And I guess it's it's a story that has nothing to do with Thanksgiving, but to me, that's... Because it's about, you know, families. And, you know, I can attest that, you know, I don't think that it did any damage to Max, who seems to be turning yeah. into a fine young man. And, you know, this the story that my mother always, always told, and of course my mother is much on my mind. So my mother has some startling, extraordinary qualities. When she was young, she had this savant-like intelligence, and she she could remember verbatim everything she read. And I think she could quote more poetry than anybody probably living or dead. Um, and she was incredibly smart, um, thoughtful, and kind. But the things she was bad at, she was really bad at. Someday I'll tell you the story about her golfing experience in, in college. But one of the things she was bad at was pie crust. And she had tried to make pie crust and she just failed, and she made the big mess, and the dog got the crumbs, and she had given up on pie crust except for, you know, the graham cracker kind that you press into the, the pan. And uh, I was in junior high school, and I took home ec with Mrs. Gearhart, and Mrs. Gearhart showed us how to make pie crust. And nobody had even planted a seed of an idea that this was a difficult thing to do. And so I didn't have that idea. I watched her make it. And I thought, well, this looks pretty easy. I, I'm going to try this. And so I came home and I told my mother I wanted to make a pie. And so I was, what, in junior high school, that I'd be 13 or something. And, uh, and she thought pie crust was 
basically impossible. But my mom's M.O. was to just let me try anything as long as it wasn't unreasonable. And she tells this story that she watched in total astonishment as I cut in the butter and the Crisco into the the flour and I made a dough and I rolled it out and it came out perfectly. And look, like my mother, I suck at a lot of things. But like, there's one thing I can do. I can make a pie crust. And every Thanksgiving when, you know, these pie crusts with these beautiful cream crusts comes out, my mother likes to tell that story, which again has absolutely nothing to do with climate and very little to do with Thanksgiving, but everything to do with what matters when we're sitting around the table with the people we love. It's amazing, uh, Tamara. And I wish I wish I had known your mom. I, I wish you had too. And you know, your dad sent me a lovely little email, and I told him that uh, that I bet my parents would have liked him and and your mom. And you know, one of the reasons I think that we enjoy doing this show so much is that we have some common threads in the background. So I, I'm sorry that your parents and my parents never got to meet. Look, the other thing Thanksgiving is about is about Thanksgiving. Um, and, uh, and look, in the spirit of our show, I do think, uh, like, I think a lot about, even more than I ever did, about how grateful I am that I'm not hungry, how grateful I am that I'm not a climate refugee. Um, and let's face it, a lot of the people who are hungry are the same people who are climate, going to be climate refugees. And one solution to both problems, right, is to make tons of food. Um, and we we sometimes do, you know, we get a little bit snarky about some of this. You know, hey, there's, there's a lot we? of yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, well, there's there's a, neither one of us like this. There's all this thank a farmer propaganda, right? Like you know, if you're eating, thank a farmer, you know, and um, and and a lot of it is kind of pernicious, right? It's trying to excuse all the kind of indefensible subsidies that we give farmers and a lot of the environmental damage, sort of an argument for for no regulation. And there are, as we've discussed, there are an awful lot of downsides to modern agriculture. It's weird, you know, and and it's certainly not the same kind of working of the land always that we thought of in the old days. A lot of it, it's like, you know, sort of businessmen and self-driving tractors who are doing option trading. Um, but yeah, I do think that Thanksgiving is a time when, you know, when we can thank a farmer <laughs> because because we we have seen in in 20, 2022, right? Uh we did an episode about the food crisis and food really is a fragile thing. I mean, the fact that you know, 1% of our population now farms allows the other 99% of us to do other things. Um and we've seen that the more f- food that they can make, the more efficient they can be, the better it's going to be for our forests, for our planet, for our climate. Um, so I do think that uh, as we pig out on Thanksgiving, um, it is, it's something for us to, to keep in mind that particularly those of us who do shows that are in many ways devoted to slagging agriculture quite often, um, it's good to remember that agriculture, to the extent that it's evil, it's a necessary evil, and we should be trying to make it less evil. And there are a lot of people working on that. And I think, you know, because only 1% of us are farmers, uh, 
many of us are completely disconnected from the source of our food. And agriculture usually makes the news when it's something bad. Um, the good things aren't nearly as compelling. And But we only eat well because people are out there working on our crops, on our animals. And I have met many, many, many of them who are working every day to do it better. Um, and I am totally with you to thank a farmer on Thanksgiving. So, so tomorrow, I know this has been a, it's been a tough couple of weeks for you, but, but I want to hear a little bit as we close about what, what you're thankful for right now. Man, what am I not thankful for? I am thankful for having a roof over my head and knowing where my next meal is coming from. I am thankful for being able to do work that I find satisfying and gratifying. I am thankful. God, you can't do this to me. (laughs) I am thankful for my husband who put solid ground under my feet every single day, knowing that I have a partnership that will take whatever comes. I am thankful that I don't have to worry about where my food comes from because I know it's going to continue to come. And you? Well, I'm thankful that I get to do this show with you tomorrow. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a real joy. And I know we really are, we're sending you love this week. And, uh, and I know that everybody listening feels the same way. Um, it's been beautiful hearing about your mom. I know she's very proud. And, uh, and, and I'm thankful that I got to hear about her. Thanks, Mike. And I think we should wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to hear from you, and not just for the hundred bucks that we're giving away on a Patagonia gift card that you can find the link to in the show notes, but just in a general way. We want to know what your concerns are, what your comments are, what you're thinking. Our phone number is 508-377-3449, or you can get to us the old-fashioned way at Climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamara Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Ann Bailey is the senior editor. Managing producer is Cecily Mesa-Martinez and Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrunk. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. If you like our show, we hope you'll spread the word by giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. And again, we hope you'll tune in on November 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern when we're going to be live and virtual. Uh, And we're going to be talking to the food and nutrition goddess, Marion Nestle. So please join us November 30th. Mike goes with goddess. I go with premier nutrition scientist of the Western world. But either way, you're going to want to hear her. So tune in and don't forget the $100 Patagonia gift card. Uh, And we'll be back again next week with a new show.